Oh, today I'm with Raluca Stank Stanka. Have I said it correctly this time? Correct. Third thank time's a charm. God, thank God. Um, yeah, so you work in anti-money laundering, mm -hmm. if I'm correct. That's right. Way. It's good when you know your guests front and back, but normally we have a sheet somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> today the intern fucked up because we don't have one. <laughs> so uh, you're originally from Romania. Correct. And uh, how did you end up here in the UK? Came here to study back in 2013. You came to study in 2013? Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. And what made you choose London? Well, I th English was like my preferred language of studying in, was the language I <coughs> kind of knew best at that time anyway. Okay. Um, and you feel like you've known a language now better. What do you mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought you you would you you've been complaining less about my Romanian accent, so I thought you would agree with me. So so uh, I've known Raluca for for quite some time now, and Raluca has this ability of picking up any accent that she hangs out with. It's so bizarre. So if you would send her to I, I don't know like Barbados, she would come back with an English Barbados <laughs> accent. It's it's it, I've it's perfect mimicry. It's so weird. <laughs> It's so, so weird. She went to Australia once for a few months, and when she came back, she spoke like English Australian, and I was so annoyed. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose, though? No. You're such a liar. No. Are you being honest? I never tried. The only accent I ever tried to pick up was a British one. I can't do it. <laughs> so, yeah. So, what would you say your accent sounds like now? Just... Eastern European European British nonsense. Yeah. I like how you put the <laughs> British <laughs> you still try to fit that somewhere just in. Trying, yeah. Yeah. Just using the words mate, boy bruv. Christ. Okay, so you came here to study. Mm. So what made you stay here? What made me I'm gonna stop trying to answer your questions with another question. Yes. Uh, yeah. Um I don't know, I just really love it here. Um as we talked about earlier. In between my studies, I also uh, spent half a year in Mannheim and half a year in Spain yeah. to kind of get a feeling if I that's somewhere I would like to live. But in the end, I still decided for London. It was also the best place to do what I wanted to do, which was consulting. Although now I'm in something pretty niche. So like you said, I'm in anti-financial crime consulting. Um, and yeah, I think out of the rest of Europe and excluding obviously Romania from the conversation mm. and this is the best place to do what I do now. I mean you, you, if you're just talking about English-speaking countries you could have also gone to anywhere in the US, pro, uh, New York, that's a big financial institute, uh, Hong Kong at the time before it now independence now things have changed. Yeah I think it was a couple of factors so obviously there was the English language plus like growing up in Romania I think it's quite popular for students to come to UK. Mm -hmm. When I came, UK was still in the EU, so we had a lot more access to funds and loans from the government, so it was a bit easier to get funding to be here. Hmm. Um, the US was just really far, and I guess I was never really drawn to China, Asia that much to actually consider it. So I still wanted to be relatively closer to family than moving across an ocean. I mean, I could imagine so. I think that's why a lot of people in in Europe try to stay around the UK, uh, France, Germany, mm. just because of the access to family. 
I mean, like, we're, it, it, it's weird that we put such an emphasis on it because it's only like a six hour, eight hour flight from New York to, to London. Yeah. Right? So it's not that much different to from Romania to London, uh, for, to from Romania to New York, maybe like 10 hours. Well, six, yeah, turns into 10 and eight turns into 12. Yeah, but that's not going to stop you from seeing your family, though, really. No. You're not sitting there going like, mm, I'm not going to do that 10 hour flight. No, but it's also, well, cost is also something to think about. But yeah, It's not that much. I mean, New York to, to London is like 300 pounds. So you now are in financial crimes. Anti-financial crimes. Anti-financial <laughs> crimes. Thank you for adding the anti part. <laughs> That would have made things very complicated <laughs> otherwise. Yeah. How did you find yourself in this profession? It was just um, a role I applied for. So when I was still in my second year, I did this internship in the Romanian government in the kind of equivalent of HMRC, but the department that only deal, deals with tax fraud. So that was kind of my first touch point with uh, anti-financial crime. And then... This role popped up on, on was an analyst program that I applied for, um, and it just sounded really cool that I could do consulting, but in something that's not necessarily building more profits for a company or redesigning their operations and stuff like that. So, kind of had like a good cause behind it. Okay, so what would be what would be your your next promotion? Would it be more involving taking charge of cases as a manager or would it be more managing the office? No. Or the department, for example? No, so we have a, an advisory team hmm? that's being led and the, most of the business development is done by directors and above. And people are director and below, they kind of manage the projects and they execute the projects. So for me, at a step up from where I am now, it would probably be managing like a small team of okay. analysts to completion of a of an engagement. So the way the structure would work then, it, in your next step up, mm -hmm. whatever the title would be called, uh, would be you'd not so much manage the the project, you'd be managing the team. Yeah, you would in be, the project, yeah, right? Making sure the work gets delivered, and I think a bit of client engagement, but not as much as you would at manager or director level. Of yeah. course, that makes total sense. Uh, and how do like cases get assigned? Is it just randomly by the next person on top, or it's a mixture of who has availability, mm -hmm. so who's on the bench at the minute, and who has experience in that field? If mm. if it's something more niche, although we're in a niche field anyway. But of course, yeah. yeah. And and does it then get divided into domestic and international? No, or just yeah. You, you win you win a project as a so the company has offices in London, New York, Singapore. Um, in Sydney for what we do in advisory um, and then the London team just bids for work for the office to execute and that could be here or that could be anywhere in Europe as well as the EMEA region basically that we kind of went working. And what was your pre previous employment? I was, an, I was con contracting in consulting, but more generic roles, so a lot of more market research and due diligence for some of the big strategy consulting firms. And after that, I was working with a property technology company, kind of in their operations analytics, so driving insights from their sales to generate growth. Okay, and so... How would you how would you go about giving advice to someone who's coming out of university 
and is thinking of joining Corporate Ladder mm-hmm. and starting off as a consultant. Most people start off in consultant these days because it gives them a wide aperture of different skill sets, uh, A and B. It gives them a wide variety of things that they can do, be it operations, marketing, finance, whatever, whatever. Well, I think you have to start thinking about that before you even finish uni. So it's usually people have a bit of work experience and in internships and all of that that have a best chance for a role. Um, if not, you might need to take like a similar route to me where you do something else beforehand to kind of put some names on your CV and build yourself up a bit more. Okay. So what would be step one in your opinion? So somebody comes out of university fresh with the paper. What would you recommend they go go do other courses, go to seminars? Definitely not. No, you, I don't think courses and seminars and these qualifications, these are things you normally would do in your job depending on what field you mm. land in. I think in the UK it's fairly easy to get a decent entry-level job with just a bachelor's degree. Um, I did a master's because of a very European mentality mm. <laughs> that I uh, was brought up in. But um, yeah, just go and get some work experience, preferably in what you want to do later on. I think a lot of people want to get onto these graduate schemes and like structured entry-level programs, which are pretty good. But I mean, don't be afraid to do something that's not that necessarily yeah i mean i think you once did some sort of speaking engagement if i'm not mistaken at university yeah a few of those so i was volunteering with the student organization for about two years and a half Mm -hmm. so i got to do a lot of personal development stuff through there including like practicing public speaking and leadership (laughs) how useful was that to be honest though I think it was really good. It definitely like really that was like productive. Yeah, I'm blown away. I, I can't believe that. <laughs> no, it was because you get to like meet a lot of people, like really networking, networking a lot. Yeah, a lot more than you would within your normal circle in the UK. And then I got to see a lot how different universities are and how other people have are on campus and all of that. But. It's also something, it gives you something to talk about. So I remember in my first interview at my current job, I spent almost like the entire time talking about what I did then because that person find it interesting. Hmm. And I think they were also captivated by the fact that I would put over 40 hours of work <laughs> each week. So they're like, yeah, she'll do the that, job. Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds productive. <laughs> yeah, they, they yeah. saw that definitely as a skill. Yeah. So how, how long did it take you between your graduation and finding uh, your first job? Well, so I submitted my master's thesis in September. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what was your master's in, first of all? My master's was in public policy and management. That's a very popular degree at the moment. I, I hear a lot of people. Really? Yeah. It was like 13 people in my course. <laughs> oh, wow. Moving from my bachelor's when we were like 300. <laughs> and, and what kind of skill sets did you learn at the course? I think... Well, it's, yeah, it's hard to sum it down to a few words. Yeah, of course. I think it's a lot of managing your own time and learning to structure a workload. I think that's something that you get to learn by studying in the UK anyway. Mm-hmm. I think in, and I've heard it's similar in the US, but I think in continental Europe, you, you do a lot of stuff in the classroom mm-hmm. and there's limited expectations of what you do at home. Whereas in the UK, it's more like the more time you put into this outside of the classroom, the better you're gonna, better grades you're gonna get, better exams you're gonna write, all of that. 
I think for for a lot of people who are listening right now, maybe in their in their let's say twenties or maybe in the beginning of their thirties and thinking about doing a master program a little later in life as a career option to somehow get a better promotion or whatever. I think what you should be really aware of is that university, especially in the UK, is different than than the American system, first of all. And second of all, the workload is is incredible. It's incredible the workload. And how much is is on your own back shall we say yeah that is something you really need to be aware of especially if you're coming from from corporate world and you're used to working with teams and bouncing back ideas and stuff like that that you're not you're you're not going to find that in university it depends on the program so that's also very true yeah i think a lot of these like more business oriented ones where people tend to look on like mba kind of style programs that are not mbas um People do a lot more case studies and all this teamwork stuff because it's kind of preparation for a corporate world and that's something you would do. Mm. But if you're doing something a bit more niche or like like policy-oriented or like political science, then yeah, I think it's a lot more independent work. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised at all that your political science and your anti-money laundering really go hand in hand in a lot of ways. They do, yeah. I think it was useful because I could kind of demonstrate that I'm able to follow policy, able to follow rules, like understand them, interpret guidance, that kind of stuff. Some tips. uh, What should uh, investors look at uh, if they're thinking about uh, uh, investing into a company? Uh, What would be some key signs that you'd say, hey, you know what? Sorry, it was not my question. No, no, it was clear, yeah. So I think from the perspective that I'm looking at number one advice would be do your due diligence or hire someone to do it for you there's a lot of good companies out there that just produce reports on different levels depending on how much you're willing to pay totally agree just to kind of understand who you're dealing with Mm. Um, and then I mean don't be afraid to ask the questions like where does this business idea come from is your capital invest your own capital invested in it Mm. yes where did that money come from? Is it not and why not? Why me as an investor, not someone else? Just try to kind of understand the other party. Can you tell me a few of the famous cases, specifically in, in domestic, as in, in the UK, mm. where where there were some big studies on, or not studies, big actions or big events with anti-money laundering, where new rules in place, shocking, like upset, stuff that you can, ta- can talk about? Yeah, so I think I'll probably start with the example of how my firm was actually built Mm. so uh, if anyone's not familiar yet there's this great docu-series on Netflix called Dirty Money Mm -hmm. and number one episode is on HSBC and Mm. how they used to used to hopefully used to and no longer do uh, launder money for the Mexican cartels Mm -hmm. Um, so that involved like an entire cross-country operation because of such a big global bank obviously you have bookings in one place that are executed in the other and sometimes offices purposely hide information for those kind of transactions to go through so um, the US regulator really like cracked down on them and they needed to install a monitor so what that is it's essentially a third party firm that's kind of an expert in compliance and financial crime compliance um, to to do a review of all their operations in multiple jurisdictions, including US, London, etc. So that's kind of how Extra came to be. Um, and that's what 
the team did for almost over five years. Um, and, and then it grew, I assume, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Back, I wasn't with the company back then, but it's like the golden days that everyone talks about. So yeah. They, yeah, well, it was only five people. No, <laughs> we so didn't they, have to they, manage anyone. <laughs> yeah, I think they started with five, but they kind of grew exponentially across the multiple years of the engagement. I think they were surprised themselves by how much work they had to do. Um, and then yeah, it was London, Mexico, Singapore, Africa. So all over the place. So why are why, why is anti-money laundering important? Why would Joe Schmuck care about it? Well, because money laundering means that funds are depleted from money that could go all elsewhere. Sure. Um, it kind of hurts, obviously, national economies. If you think about Mexico, it also supports crime as well. Obviously, um, it's just like really bad, and you're just putting money in the hands of a few. Hmm. Instead of, well, so many other things that you could do with that money. Can, can you explain to me the process of what money laundering is? Sure. So. Uh, because I'm imagining that some people are just like thinking that they get some cash doing whatever trade. They go to a casino, buy chips with that cash, go a day later and then t take that chips back into the casino. And suddenly that their money is clean. <laughs> so, yeah, there's the... By definition, three stages of money laundering. Mm -hmm. Number one is placement. So when you place the dirty money into the financial system. So let's say you're like a really cash intensive restaurant. Obviously not all that cash comes from the orders you complete and you go to your bank and you say, yeah, this is all the cash I did today, put it in, that's placement. Then layering is when you try to like do a series of transactions to obfuscate the source of those funds. So you kind of try to hide the trail of the money. Double invoices, stuff like that. Yeah, or just transferring your money from account A at this bank to account B at the other bank, buying some securities and exiting immediately, transferring money overseas, buying different products, all kind of stuff sure. like that. And then last stage is integration. So when you re-enter the dirty money into the financial system, mm -hmm. and I think most easiest one to understand is buying property with mm -hmm. cash. So you, you buy property, you rent it out, and then suddenly that good now produces legitimate funds for you to use. Your bank itself, does it more, oh sorry, your profession in itself, does it more concentrate on the individual bank account or does it concentrate more on the corporate entities? Both. Both? Yeah, all types of clients. And what do you see flagged more, more individually or more corporate wise? hard to tell depends on the portfolio of each bank mm. Mm, i can imagine that yeah yeah and and how does the how does the procedure start usually how who fl who flags who does the government come in and say hey you know what this seems unusual check this up or sometimes um you can get like inquiries from the regulator or sometimes i think the regulator puts the burden a lot on the shoulders of the bank because all right, and then just hit you with a stick when exactly, they... Exactly, yeah. yeah. The way it works, and it's not even compliance that bears the risk. Compliance is kind of there to just assess and provide challenge. Mm -hmm. But it's the business that owns the risk. So mm -hmm. the bankers are personally liable for the kind of clients they take on. Oh, really? Just so we can get this correctly, with the UK system currently, it can be either... Uh, uh, the government that comes and flags it or it can be in-house in the bank just making sure that their yeah. underwear is clean yeah. right yeah. <laughs> to put it very friendly like that yeah 
Okay, so if if you were if you were now in charge for let's say uh, a, a director or even CEO level, whatever it may be, or even let's say you worked in the local government as an advisory board, what would you say are steps the government could take to somehow do preventive measures on crypto for being misused for money laundering? Of understanding, <laughs> yeah. First of all, um, I think education is definitely a big yeah. part for lawmakers, and I think that technology is moving so much quicker than the ability of law to be able to. It's kind of hard to it. keep up. I think so this is something that I'm looking at now, which I find quite striking, is the different approach between the UK and and the US. So, for example, in the UK, there's only nine, maybe a bit more now but definitely around 10 firms in crypto that are authorized by the fca to operate okay. um whereas in the us everyone can just like apply for a license and nothing happens until something uh, happens until the uh, yeah the regulator turns around and it's like oh yeah let me look into you and how you're actually conducting your operations whereas in the uk the fca i do think they're taking a bit of a more preventative approach mm -hmm. by kind of holding firms accountable a bit more from the beginning mm -hmm. and i think they they also have this like published lists of firms that operate in the uk but are not licensed by them so in effect they are <laughs> operating illegally <laughs> yeah and do, do you see more pop-ups domestically or do you see more pop-ups internationally in terms of uh, with uh, uh, flags for concern for money laundering. I mean, I'm sh I'm guessing every bank is different, and every institute, I suppose. It would well, be because when you come, when you go and look at a bank, you look at the jurisdiction. So mm -hmm. it's not really common for London to have a flag from the US. Sure. So the flag that I would review here, if it's a UK bank, would be like UK generated flags. Okay. Um. Whereas if we're looking at a bank in Denmark, then... Sure, sure, sure. Be, then it would be yeah. probably be in Denmark, or depending also how big yeah. the bank is and all kinds of other things. Because I, I wonder how it works with private banks mm. and how their regulations are then... I'm, I'm guessing they're just uh, have, an, uh, have, an, have an auditor or, or reviewer that is off-site. I assume who would have to do that. I don't think they would probably have something like that on board. They do, they do. Oh, really? They do? Yeah, so... Even sm even the smaller banks? Yeah, so I have a colleague recently that joined from EFG Bank, and mm -hmm. yeah, they, they have their own compliance team. I think because in private banks, the risk is even bigger because of the sums that are involved. Mm -hmm. So there's that extra element of trying to understand where that money comes from. Um, and yeah, um, and the big banks definitely have it and the smaller ones haven't they've been fined quite heavily in the past some of the small uk private banks for yeah because i think the small ones are more often have let's say slip-ups yeah. <laughs> than anything else mm. so where do you see yourself heading to now i think it's i for now i still want to grow in the field um, i've only been in it for two years right so um, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of room for me to learn i don't know if i I've never really seen myself as a salesperson, okay. so I think from the point onwards where it becomes more about doing the work and um, moving towards winning the work, Okay. Uh, that's probably when I would consider moving into the industry. Oh, okay. So you, you want to stay then in banking in general? Yeah, I love like being in finance. I don't really want to change fields. Maybe potentially move to something 
more tech enabled, so maybe a fintech rather than a major wholesale international bank. But investment bank or anything like that wouldn't be something you'd be interested in. It could be. I think capital markets compliance is a whole different ball story. Yeah. It's a whole different ball game. Plus, on top of the money laundering thing, you have the market abuse side of things, which is completely separate and mm. a lot more regulation to understand. Um, but yeah, I've done a few capital markets projects already, and it's interesting. So if if the it's a lot more <laughs> white collar, if yeah. you want to call it like that. <laughs> Are you making the TV show reference? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, would you would you would you take on a job if uh, if it was instead of in the in the in the in the uh, in the public market in the private? No, sorry, what am I talking about? If it was from the government. MRA or anything like that? Would that something be interesting for you? I don't think so. Just no? from my or I uh, or the IRA, not IRA. What? Uh, the uh, what's the IRS? US? IRS. Thank you no, so much. I have no intention of looking. Either at of them. <laughs> That's what I'm going to use the title as. <laughs> IRS or IRA. <laughs> no. Okay, so you, you're going to be staying though in the U UK though. I think so. It's a bit. It will be possible to transition, but. I mean, you don't have to stay at this job. Yeah. You can be a barista if you wanted to. You can do anything you want. Yeah, open up my jewelry brand. See, you can do whatever you want. So, how many how many women are in the industry? In my firm, it's quite okay. Okay. Um, industry wide, as you would expect, it's more men than women. But okay. It's not a strike imbalance okay at least from what i've seen so far and what about conferences have you intended any no i was only in my job for a year and a bit before mm -hmm. covid hit so no and, and have you ever heard like of like anti-money laundering conferences yeah well actually wait i'm lying i supported in a it's called anti-money laundering professionals forum mm -hmm. so they do kind of master classes for professionals in the field mm -hmm. and i supported in designing a session this year oh that's fantastic yeah so it was all virtual oh fantastic if you want we can post uh, in the description um a link to it if you can even share it i don't know maybe i'm not sure <laughs> need to double check i'll circle back you'll circle back yeah <laughs> thanks mark we appreciate it <laughs> you have to you have to practice your lizard look a little bit more <laughs> 